Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest is Clive Davis. He's a corporate refugee, as he as he says. Uh, he was an attorney for 20 years and had the entrepreneurial bug, and so he made the leap to multifamily. And the punchline is that they're closing 20, I'm sorry, 30 and 40 million dollar projects now in the Atlanta area. So that's kind of the bookends of his story from you know uh, family. Uh, man and attorney to multifamily operator closing big deals. So we touch on everything in between from kind of the catalyst for him making the jump, how he structured his team, how he got educated, uh, a period where they were where he was really making a lot of offers before they closed their first deal. So we kind of talk about some of the struggles and perseverance there. But it's the story I love to hear. It's somebody that was uh, had a corporate job and wanted more for their life, wanted to be a better example for their children, and went out and made the, the multifamily dream happen. So Clive Davis is a perfect example of that. Before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsors, DJE. If you're not seeing our deals from DJE, Texas Management Group, our company, and you want to be on our list to see those future projects, you can sign up at djetexas.com to see those projects. And if you're interested in going out and running your own projects, we created apartmenteducators.com as a community and ecosystem to give you all the tools, resources, and connections to go out and buy these big multifamily deals, even if you've never done it. We've got countless stories of, of our, our, uh, our coaching clients doing that. So there's a free video series that I teach at apartmenteducators.com. You can check out DJE Texas and apartmenteducators.com right in the show notes of this episode and click the link straight through. Okay, without further ado, let's jump into the episode with Mr. Clive Davis. Here we go. Clive, hello. Welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Devin. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, glad to have you on. I want to get into the multifamily specifics and, and what the portfolio looks like today. But before that, let's kind of walk it back and let's give listeners some insight into your background and what initially led you into real estate. Yeah, so a little bit of background. So I started out professionally as a corporate transactional lawyer uh, working in New York City at a Wall Street firm. Uh, servicing uh, Wall Street clientele. Uh, I did uh, a few things within that world, uh, M&A, general banking. Ultimately, I was a capital markets attorney, so doing debt and equity offerings for uh, Fortune 100 uh, companies. So that's how I got my initial grounding professionally. I then later migrated into being in-house counsel for Pfizer, uh, which is in the news for good reasons uh, these days. Um, sure. So I, I, I spent a total of six years with them. Pfizer actually relocated us, me, me and my family, to Atlanta back in 2005. Um, and I was serving as their attorney for their Southeast business, their Southeast U.S. business. And um, two years beyond that, I became a chief compliance officer for a, a Belgian pharmaceutical company and did that for a total of nine years. So all in all, I had a 20-year corporate run in, 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 in those various roles. 
And then ultimately at the end of 2016 is when I made the decision that 20 years is a great run. And if not now, when? And the if uh, that I was talking about was the entrepreneurial itch that I had had uh, combined with kind of the passion and interest that I had had in real estate for throughout the entirety of that, that 20 year corporate life. And so I made my first real estate investment Back in 1999, I was in New York City. I bought a duplex down in Cape Coral, Florida, so Southwest Florida. Um, and uh, the reason I had done that was because my parents had retired there three years earlier. Um, and I said, you know, this would, you know, I'd always kind of heard in my family, and we're an immigrant family. My parents are from Jamaica. Uh, I come to the U.S. Uh, having been born in the U.K., uh, so London is actually my hometown. Uh, and then uh, we followed my mother, who was in pursuit of the American dream, and said, we've got to move to the U.S. And so we did that and landed in Bradley Beach, New Jersey, in the uh, mid-'80s. And uh, that's how I uh, landed in the Northeast. Um, and so within my family, it was always kind of something that you aspired to do, which was you got to own your own home. So that, that's a given. And then if you can get a rental or two, you know, that's, that's something that you do and you roll the sleeves up and, you know, sweat equity and you fix it up and you paint. So um, I recall in my early teens, you know, go, driving from New Jersey, Bradley Beach, New Jersey to Queens, New York, to a rental property uh, that my mom had secured. Um, and so I would be doing wallpapering, painting, handyman stuff with my dad. We'd, we'd sleep, uh, you know, in sleeping bags, uh, wake up, you know, back at it, wallpapering, painting, whatever needed to be done. And so that was my early exposure to kind of real estate um, without necessarily viewing it or understanding it as an investment thing. It was just, we own this and we've got these folks uh, that live in this house and, and they pay us. Um, so that was my early exposure. So um, fast forward into 1999, when I got that first duplex, it was the idea of, let me get this. Um, this will be an excellent way for me to subsidize my parents in retirement now. And so what I did is I set up a checking account. I added my parents to the account. I had the rents going into that account. And I basically told my parents, look, when you need something, you don't need to come to me. It's your account. Just, just take what you need, do what you need to do. And that was my way of you know, giving them some independence and, and um, you know, uh, playing my role, playing my position with respect to them being in retirement and, and not having any kind of golden um, retirement packages or anything. So so it worked out. It worked out well. I self-managed it um, and it turned out to be a long-term hold. I held that until 2018. Um, so definitely a long-term hold. And, and then um, in 2017, I added five units to it. Um, but uh, at, again, at the end of 2016 is when I uh, said, you know, if not now, when, and decided that I'm going to go give this thing a shot. And this thing being, you know, take real estate investment more seriously than the hobby it had been for the 20 years prior. And uh, I started down this path and I, I refer to it as my self-directed real estate MBA. Um, so 
uh, I was done with any kind of formal academic education, but I embarked on this journey of, of getting educated and surrounding myself with people who uh, were doing exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I joined a mentoring program um, to, to put me in that position. Uh, that mentoring program is the program where I found the partners uh, that I have on the deals that I've done uh, since. Um, and it's also where I found uh, some of the investors who have gone on to invest in, in some of my deals. So, uh, so that was a part of it, attending multifamily conferences, listening to podcasts uh, like this one, something I had not done in my 20-year corporate career. Um, that totally changed because I got to a point of listening to two to three podcasts a day, specifically focused on multifamily. So really geeking out on multifamily and all things multifamily related. And, um, you know, that was really my education. And then the final piece was really um, because I believe in commercial real estate and specifically multifamily. I took all of my legacy uh, retirement funds from my prior employers and I moved all of it into a self-directed IRA. And I started investing in deals all across the country, mostly institutional quality sponsors, uh, a big chunk of that via crowd, uh, crowd-funded platforms. Um, and uh, you know, I diversified geographically, asset type. I did existing, I did ground up development. I did office to multifamily conversions. I did a little bit of everything um, within the multifamily space. And then additionally, I invested in some hotels around town here in Atlanta. Uh, so really kind of just diversifying the holdings and um, also investing in my backyard. I love it, Clive, thank you. There's, there's so much in there. Um, to dig into, I especially like the diversity of the re retirement plan. Um, and spread geographic diversity, operator diversity, asset diversity. I mean, you really set yourself up well there. Um, and I have a few questions we can dig into later on that, but I wanted to get into your, your corporate career. And I'm always interested to know, um, clearly you've done a lot of things in a compressed time frame, And it's very interesting how once somebody gets serious about it, there's, you realize <laughs> when you start this journey, you, you, try to find all the time and money that you can. And when you really go looking for those things, it's amazing how much you can find of both when you're serious about it. And so you can compress a lot of education in a short amount of time. What was, was there a specific catalyst for you in the corporate world where you said, you know what, this is it? Or was it just enough time in the saddle where you'd said, you know, to your point, if, if not now, when, or was there a big event? What did that look like for you? It's a combination of both. There, there was no big event that I would point to um, but I was very, so this was a time my firstborn, my, my oldest child, my daughter, uh, was going to be heading off to college in six, seven months from that point in time. And so um, I wanted to spend as much time as I could with her before she headed off. Uh, and she was going to be going to uh, up, up to the Northeast, uh, up to New Jersey for school. Um, so that, that was something in the back of my mind. Um, but I was really to the if not now when point, I was really thinking about what kind of example am I set in and what am I modeling for my children? So I have four children, uh, the oldest of which is now a college graduate and then three behind her. And, you know, I everything that I've been doing professionally has been really to set them up so that they would be in a position where they would graduate from college, 
debt-free, and they would be able to make decisions based upon what am I truly passionate about? What am I truly interested in? And not what's going to pay me the most to pay down or pay off this this student debt, which is killing so many uh, American college graduates that are saddled with this debt when they get out. And that ends up dictating way too much of what they end up doing as a result, professionally and and job-wise. So I, when I graduated law school, just from law school alone, I had six figures in debt. And so as I thought about it, as I looked out on the horizon and thought, you know, what do you want to do? Um, when I summered at the law firm that I ultimately went on to be uh, hired by, in that just summer on an annualized basis, I was making the equivalent of, I think, 87000 a year. In my father's best year, working 16 hour shifts most of my life, he made 60,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get on kind of that conveyor belt and then you're looking at kind of, okay, I got a hundred thousand in debt. Uh, and you're looking around as to what you're gonna do and you kind of gravitate towards the thing that is gonna be most financially lucrative, not necessarily what am I most passionate about. And so I wanted to eliminate that for my children. So I was heavily thinking about what am I modeling for them? Am I being a hypocrite when I tell them you can do anything you want to do and, you know, get outside your comfort zone, pursue your passions and all that stuff. But yet I'm doing something that, you know, it's I'm well compensated. Um, You know, it's pretty much on autopilot. I'm in my 20th year. Um, The growth trajectory has kind of flattened out. Um, I'm not growing professionally and personally in the same way I was in my 20s and 30s. I'm now in my mid 40s at the time. And so a lot of this was on my mind. And, um, you know, I said to myself, you know, if not now, when? And worst case scenario, I can always go find a six-figure job. It may not be a job that, you know, I'm passionate about and it's the job that I've always wanted my whole life. Um, but nonetheless, the, the family is going to be fine. My safety net is if this leap of faith doesn't work out, I can go back. I can find a job. Uh, I've got a skill set. I've got experience. Uh, I've got a law degree. Um, I can make all of that work for me uh, if need be. Fantastic. I love the example uh, or setting the example for your children. And they they don't listen much, but they sure do watch, Right. Um, and I think that's an, uh, an incredible point and, you know, commend you obviously for the courage to do that. I wanted to talk a little bit about your vocation in your corporate days as an attorney. Seems like attorneys a lot of times are risk averse or looking for ways to kill a deal, not make a deal happen some, sometimes. Yet you, you know, had the entrepreneurial itch, went out and made it happen. No small feat. You made the jump and, and you landed it. Um you know, are you just more entrepreneurial than the typical attorney or what, you know, what's your, what's your um, kind of thought around, around that? Uh, It's a great question. Great point. Um, And not only was I a corporate lawyer, I went on to be a chief compliance officer. Exactly. That's what, that's what caught my attention. Yeah. So, so so the joke was that, you know, the compliance officer was the, the, the person who's going to deliver the no or, or tell you, the many reasons why you couldn't do the thing that you wanted to do. <laughs> yes. And, and, and I like to think that um, even as a chief compliance officer, I, 
I was more of a business-minded uh, chief compliance officer and a business-minded lawyer. And so I would talk to sales representatives and say, look, I get it. You've got a book of business that you're responsible for and you've got to grow that. And so think of me more of, think of me more as a consultant to you as a small business owner who's got objectives and targets you've got to hit. And so I'm on your team and we together are trying to figure out how do you get to do what it is that you're trying to do. So I, I was very conscientious about, I know what the perception is of, of, oh, here comes the lawyer. Oh boy, here comes the chief compliance officer. And I, and I throughout my career, try to be the opposite of that. Right. Um, and you're absolutely right. Lawyers generally are averse. But again, I come back to, I was in a position where I had the luxury of, if this didn't work out, um, you know, if, if, the, if the dream wasn't realized, go back and get a job. Um, and so I joke that uh, when I left corporate life at the end of 2016, I didn't quite burn my boat. I, I, I soaked it in gasoline, but I, I didn't light the match and, and ignite it. Um, because I always kind of, you know, had in the back of my mind, well, let's see how this plays out. And, you know, you got, you, you kind of don't want to burn your boat yet. And, um, you know, it, it, it worked out and, um, you know, I got the breakthrough, uh, with the first property, uh, that we, um, were awarded back in 2021. Um, I'm not an overnight success. It took me two years, uh, COVID was in there. And so probably five or six months where, there wasn't really any inventory moving and everyone was in a kind of wait and see mode. But nonetheless, it took me two years from the very first LOI that I submitted in April of 19 to when we got awarded that first deal in the summer of 21. Um, so my first deal, 244 units, uh, $30 million deal here in Atlanta. And um yeah, it, it, it took me a while, but then the law of the first deal kicked in. And the very week that we closed that first deal, we were awarded our second deal, a 200 unit, $40 million deal uh, that we ended up closing this February. And, you know, so once I got that breakthrough, I was like, all of that work, all of that effort, all of that investment in myself, in my time, uh, in my education of myself, all of that paid off and, and there was no looking back. And, and we, I officially had a boat burning ceremony uh, on New Year's Eve, uh, me and my family, we, we, we had uh, paper mache boats. Uh, oh. So we, we, we for, each, for different reasons, we, we lit them on fire and we kind of you know, left that in the past and, and just you know, full speed ahead. So it came full circle. And uh, now it's just uh, you know, no regrets and, and just love the path that I'm on. Fantastic. I love the example uh, that you set with for your children, again, by having the ceremony and going through that. I think that's incredibly powerful. And thank you for being candid on what it takes on the front end. Um, some people get lucky and get a deal earlier, but it's a lot of looking at deals. It's a lot of making offers that don't go anywhere. And it takes, uh, you know, it's been described to me as it takes a lot of rocket fuel to get out of the atmosphere. And during that time, you're not getting paid. You're actually paying money for coaching or networking or travel or conferences. You're taking time. So it's, a, it's an investment. And you have to really get to that first deal to, to recoup it. Um, 
what what was life like for you transitioning out of the corporate world? You know, how did your how did your day day you know your what your your day to day kind of activities and how you structured your week? Because that's a lot of time and energy back leaving a you know a, a high stress high responsibility uh, job to to do your entrepreneurial endeavor. Talk to us about how that how that worked for you because that's a big shift, right? The big shift and and one of the primary reasons I left corporate life is because I wanted to eliminate any and all excuses as to why I couldn't accomplish the thing that I wanted to accomplish, and so. Before I left corporate life, I was traveling to Brussels three or four times a year, uh, Brazil uh, three or four times a year, Mexico City three or four times a year. Just So I'm just talking about international and not even considering just domestic travel. And so lots of demand on my time. And I would, if I were continuing to work, I have so many, I would have had so many excuses as to why you can't go to that multifamily conference for three days why you can't go tour that property, why you can't underwrite, you know, X number of deals a, a week or a month or whatever. And so I just wanted to eliminate all excuses. So I would totally be accountable for my success or failure. And I, I wouldn't be in a position where I could point to, well, I would have been successful, but I had all of these competing interests and that's what pays the bills. And so I kind of cut the cord, you know, went cold turkey and the transition for me from a day-to-day standpoint was my wife, who had been home for 17 plus years um, doing the real work, you know, raising or being on hand, raising the children and, and handling all of the responsibilities of the home. She's a teacher by training. So this, my departure from corporate was the first opportunity for us to say, you know what, this would be a great opportunity for you to return to what you love, which is teaching. And so she did exactly that. So she started teaching. So now she's leaving me at home and heading to the classroom Um, at the time. She teaches kindergarten through second grade. And so at the time, our youngest child was in first grade, entering first grade. Uh, My wife was next door teaching a first grade class. And so now she's back into teaching and I'm the stay at home dad. I'm doing uh, drop-offs, pickups. I was already a gymnastics dad going all over the country with, with two of my children for gymnastics. And that just intensified. Uh-huh. Um, but um, working from home now, uh, my time is my own and I get to plot out my day, my travel um, and everything uh, just totally flipped on its head. And I basically bought back my time. And, um, you know, my days look very different then and look very different now. And it's almost like I couldn't imagine returning to office life uh, because even before COVID, I was I was home. I was working from home. And so even when COVID hit, it wasn't that that dramatic for me because I was like, well, I'm not out and about anyway. I'm not you know, I'm not heading into the office or, you know, so my lifestyle was not as heavily disrupted as, as others who, you know, would work in a traditional corporate in-office life. Right, right. Was it tough to convince your wife to get on board um, for this whole venture? That's a big shift, obviously. It, it wasn't at all um, because I think she, well, she's always been supportive. So, so um, and she was confident that I'm because I'm a lawyer and I am somewhat risk averse. She assumed I'm not going to do anything that is so risky 
um, so reckless that, you know, the bills aren't getting paid, um, you know, the, the, the college tuitions aren't getting paid, the, you know, all of those things. And so the assumption was, I know you, you, you're very thoughtful and you're not going to embark on anything that is reckless. And so she was 100% supportive from the outset. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, our, our better halves always want us to be doing the thing that, you know, we're passionate about or we want to pursue and that which makes us happy. So 100% support on the family front. And the kids, the kids in particular, I mean, they, they loved it because they were seeing a whole new dad, uh, you know, that they hadn't experienced before. And, you know, so the time you spend uh, driving them to school, picking them up from school and carpool, you know, all of that is time that you're now spending with them that, you know, for, at least for my kids, they had not experienced because it had always been mom's going to drop us off. Mom's going to pick us up for the most part. So um, and then whereas I would go home and I'd have no interest in talking about what I was doing as a Wall Street lawyer or as a chief compliance <laughs> officer. Sure. You know, now the stuff that I was doing, those were good conversations. I could take them to a, a unit that I'm renovating and check this out and look at the before and look what we're doing to it. And, you know, they could get into that in a way that, you know, talking about debt and equity offerings, uh, you know, just, just couldn't compete. So, um, you know, they loved it. And, and um, you know, when I got my first deal awarded to me, you, you can't see it, but they, they put together a, a congratulations deal maker banner. So when I, when I arrived home, they had this banner and balloons and all this stuff. So they, they, <laughs> they got into it and they were, you know, really my cheerleaders as, as I was pursuing that first breakthrough opportunity and then, you know, deals behind that. Fantastic. Yeah, the support of the family uh, cannot be overestimated. I, I love hearing that story. Um, so, Clive, let's talk about what you got. You guys have closed two large deals, 30 million, 40 million dollar deals, over 200 units. What are you looking for today in terms of market and deal type? You know, what, what's your criteria you're, you're out there trying to find? Yeah, it's a great question. And my criteria has definitely evolved throughout that the entirety of the two plus years of chasing sure. uh, before the first deal. And so even the deal that we closed in November, which is a early 70s vintage, 244 units, C-class property um, in Atlanta, uh, that's probably not a property that I'm, I would be interested in today. And so my criteria has evolved. And I would say that we, like many others, are, have, are climbing the class ladder, if you will, uh, in terms of what we're looking at. So when I talk to brokers today, I tell them, look, if it's, if it's not 80, 80s vintage or newer, and ideally 90s vintage or newer, I'm not really going to get excited about it. Um, and so newer vintage, uh, B-class preferred, um, and I've, I've offered on some A-class properties. Um, and so, again, kind of climb that, <clears throat> climb that class ladder. And um, uh, so those are the properties I'm looking for today. In terms of market, I'm essentially exclusively focused on the Atlanta Metro. Um, Excellent. Yep. I, I have looked at other markets, depending on kind of volume and inventory and things of of that nature uh, throughout the, the, the months and years. But right now I'm, I, I'm exclusively focused on the Atlanta Metro um, and uh, looking to add to the portfolio here uh, this year. 
hopefully I can do another couple deals before the close of the year. Obviously, there's a lot of movement and uncertainty and interest rates are, are kind of have to be factored in. Sure, um, sure. But if we can make that happen, that, that that's what we'll do. Yeah, that's perfect. Makes sense. And, and being in one market certainly has its advantages. How many listing brokers would you say are there, you know, active multifamily listing brokers in Atlanta, just to give people a sense of the size of that market? Oh, there's, it's a huge number, but you know, the rule of the, the, the 80-20 rule says that 20% of the broker brokers are handling 80% of the deals. Right. And then when you look within the specific firms, whether it's a Cushman, a CBRE, you know, you name them, uh, there, there's a small number of, of brokers within those firms who are handling a lot of the deal transactions. But Atlanta's a huge market. And uh, in the last decade, Atlanta is actually number one in terms of the number of units uh, that have changed hands. Um, wow. So Dallas is number two, Atlanta is number one. Um, and, uh, you know, from a deal volume, Atlanta is usually in the top three. Um, the last couple of years, it's, it's been off the charts. And so there, there's a huge number of brokers. I don't, I don't even want to guesstimate what it is. Um, you know, we have our cast of the usual um, top players and names, the Cushmans, the CBREs tend to dominate. Uh, uh, Greer is another more boutique firm mm-hmm. um, that handles a lot of transactions. And then you have some kind of other others uh, pulling up the rear. Um, but I have, you know, I've been blessed uh, to, to establish relationships with, with all of them. Um, and so when you think about what are you doing for two years when you don't have a deal, uh, well, you're submitting LOIs, you're going on tours, you're developing relationships and hopefully credibility with brokers. And um, while you don't necessarily have something tangible to show for it, um, you are making meaningful progress. And that's something I had to remind myself of when I'm saying, man, so-and-so just got into this and they, they got their first deal in three months or four months. What's wrong with me? Or, you know, am I in the right market? Or, you know, what, what do I need to be doing differently? But, um, you know, you, you just remain persistent and, and resilient. And, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, I was able to get that breakthrough. Yeah, excellent. And you mentioned all the first deal. Once that happens, I mean, you guys literally closing a deal immediately, you know, your second deal immediately after. Now you got a track record. You've got a big portfolio. You've proven you can close. I mean, that is just night and day for, for brokers and sellers to understand that you can point to something in the market that you actually own and not, you know, have all this theory and ideas and and education behind you, you can point to a deal you own. How do you guys structure your, your capital for these projects? These are big, these are big projects. Yeah, so we we uh, do uh, we've done 506B syndications. Uh, for the first deal, we raised eight and a quarter million um, from our our network. Uh, and on these, there's four core partners uh, on both of these deals. And each of us, we have our respective networks that we go out to, and, and we raise the equity that we need. Uh, the second deal we closed in February, we raised 13 million. Fantastic. Um, and. Uh, the deals, at least the deals thus far, have been at a size where we can do kind of a traditional syndication. But as I've started to look at bigger deals, so I mentioned some A-class deals that I've looked at that are, you know, 60, 70 million. Uh, that's where, you know, we've been having conversations and establishing relationships with kind of single check writers 
Um, and, um, you know, that will, you know, that's what you need to consider if you want to kind of scale and, and grow and, and start doing bigger deals. Um, but right now it's, it's just been traditional syndication and, and, um, you know, just sharing with our network and educating them and sharing with them the opportunities that we have. Yeah, I love it. I mean, there's advantages and disadvantages to private equity versus single check writers. Single check writers, though, you know, you have a 50 or 75K check writer back out of a, de back out of a deal. It's like inconsequential, which is nice. Nobody's really got you um, over a barrel at the one yard line before closing a big deal, which is which is nice. And then I also like that you've got a lot of these investors are just regular folks that want a chance to participate in direct ownership of something rather than, uh, you know, gamble in the stock market or whatever the case is. So there's certainly some reward there and kind of getting people access to those opportunities, right? Absolutely. And I, I saw a stat within the last couple of weeks that said, you know, if you invested in the S&P 500 a year ago, you're actually negative, you know, 12 months later. And so, um, you know, I think far too many of us are overexposed to the stock market. Right. Um, and haven't entertained, um, you know, some of these alternative investment op options and opportunities like real estate and multifamily specifically uh, gives to you. Um, and I myself, when I was in corporate life, I didn't know about these opportunities. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's not because it's rocket science. It's just, you know, do you have access? Do you have knowledge of their existence? Right. And, um, you know, half the battle is is making people aware of it and then educating them to the opportunity. And then, you know, everyone has been told at some point in their life, diversification is a good thing. And so if I talk to someone, I say, you know, where's your retirement fund? You know, where's most of your savings? And they're pretty much telling me, well, it's all in my 401k or it's it's you know, it's all in my house or a combination or something. And you say, well, have you given thought to, you know, invest in passively in, in some of these multifamily opportunities? They're open to it. Um, they just haven't heard about it before. And, and no one within their circle um, has, has done it or, or shared the opportunity with them. And so, you know, that's what we do when we, talk, when we reach out and talk to people within our network and, and try and educate them and, and uh, share the knowledge that we have with them. Yeah, that's right. A lot of it is just connecting the dots. I mean, we say all the time that you, any adult, for the most part, that's that has some, the financial wherewithal understands they need to be in real estate. They just they think it might be doing the rental house thing like you and I have done and all the work and it's work. Um, literally, it's just exposing people to the idea sometimes. I mean, it, the vast majority of people have no idea this even exists. So that a lot of times it's just connecting the dots. And, and obviously if someone's got a relationship with you and they, you know, they see that you're investing in the deal, then sometimes that's kind of all it takes, but uh, very interesting. There's a lot of it's just education, right? Just, just pointing it out. So what do you guys see ahead? You know, we're talking mid 2022 right now, obviously we're, we've always got headwinds and tailwinds and tailwinds are huge rent growth, you know, all over the nation. Uh, headwinds are, uh, debt markets are a little little choppy right now, but what do you guys want to you know do for the for the year ahead for your company? Yeah, so for the remainder of this year, like I said, I, I want to close at least two more deals, um, and so uh, it's going to be an active second half of the year, um, and uh, you know we'll trade wins regardless. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll be pushing forward, 
and uh, looking to be out there and be competitive on deals uh, that meet our criteria. So that's kind of the, the remainder of the year. Obviously, a, a, a consistent focus on asset management of the deals that we do have. Um, you know, I, I kind of play a primary role being the only boots on the ground among my partnership team. Sure. Um, and so there's a ton of learning and experience and, and you know, that's, you know, I'm, I'm very much interested in that and, and being a, a solid asset manager and improving and, and, and understanding better every day, you know, how I can be more effective as an asset manager. So that's, that's a given, that's a consistent. And then beyond 2022, uh, for me, uh, it's a matter of if not when I get into the development space. And so I've uh, got my fingerprints on, uh, in a small way, on some development opportunities now. I'm actually going to uh, tour a, uh, a site, kind of pre-groundbreaking tomorrow um, that I have a small interest in. Uh, it's not my deal, but uh, you know, it's an opportunity for me to learn uh, kind of as a passenger. Um, but it's a matter of if, not when, I will get you know, deeper into development opportunities. And, and so uh, I'm positioning myself for that now. Excellent. Excellent. I love it. Well, Clive, I appreciate you sharing the story with the audience, the whole thing from getting into it to the, the current deals and, and a look ahead. If somebody listening wants to connect with you, what's a good avenue for that? The, I'm on social media. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. But really the best place if you want to connect with me, if you want to book a call or uh, follow me on social media is via my website. And that's parkroyalcapital.com. Um, recently launched it. So uh, proud of that. So I'd love to get some feedback. Um, but that's the best way to connect uh, with me. Great. Yeah, the site looks great. Um, and we'll link to that in the show notes. So if you're listening to the show, you can go in the description. You'll see a short description and you can click right through to the URL and, and connect uh, with you. Well, Clive Davis, it was a pleasure getting to, to meet you and thank you for sharing your story. I wish you guys continued success. Much appreciated. Once again, thanks for having me, Devin. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.